Welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. On this episode, we are back with Sean Gallagher of Gallagher Performance. Uh, we have talked with Sean multiple times, and every time we do, it is a great conversation. Um, in a previous episode, which we can link up, we talked about just hockey training in general. In this episode, we tie hockey training back into DNS, as Sean was just over um, before the time of this recording overseas, uh, working with some of the top people in the world when it comes to hockey training. And so we sat down and talked a little bit more specifics about how the principles of DNS are applied to the hockey world. And it ended up, as always, being a really good episode with them. So we look for you to check that out. We are continuing to try and give away these free mobility kits. So please take a look at this video if you're watching it if not go back just leave us a rating and a review on itunes we'll look at it we will then shout out anybody we can in order to get you that mobility kit ships to you free of charge um has everything you need from a roller to some other implements and mini bands to help you with your prehab and mobility work so please take a look at that we desperately want to get these out to people so with that Please enjoy this episode, and we will talk to you all soon. Dr. Sean Gallagher. Uh, this will be round three, and he is fresh off a trip across the pond to, it was Sweden, is that correct? Yep, yep, just north of Stockholm, Uppsala. Uppsala. Probably people would think I'm butchering that, you know, but it's, uh, I, I want to say it's Uppsala. Okay. Which actually is home of the, uh, as I learned from my time over there, home of the largest university in Sweden. Um, the town itself is about 350,000 people. 100,000 of that are university students. Dang. Holy cow. Wow. So it's, basic, it's basically a college university town. Um, but they've got a lot of history there, like the largest cathedral in Sweden's there. So we, we got a little tour of the town. Um, by, uh, so it was a, a DNS course. Um, and the, the lead instructor was Mikael Truch, who for people in DNS, he's recognized as Mr. Hockey. He works with the Czech national team. Um, most famously, he works directly with Jager. And Jager, if this isn't a testament for DNS and their methodologies, I don't know what is because Jager is still playing professional hockey. He's 47 and uh, I think it was like Friday or Saturday while we were over there, the, the Czech league um, started up and he scored a goal in the first game of the season. So he's been playing pro hockey for 31 years. That's insane. That is crazy. Um, and really no signs of uh, slowing down. So it was fun. To, 
you kind of get to pick the brain of Mikel about Yager and all kind of like his opinion on all the stuff that he does. A lot of it he attributes to genetics, which, uh, you know, you figure it's got to be part of it. Um, but then the guys that actually brought uh, Mikel to Uppsala are the head, uh, basically, if you will, therapist and also involved in training with the Swedish national team, as well as their U18 and U17 team. So my mind was getting blown all weekend. It's like the, the Swedish national team is among the, the best in the world. They're regular contenders for gold medals at uh, international competitions, which is quite interesting when you consider the sheer size of Sweden relative to some other countries. And then you look at this, the number of NHL players they produce. Um, and, and you look at relative, let's just say the U S or Canada. So kind of get some interesting insight into some of their, their player development. Um, and then what they're doing, which is a lot of integration of DNS, but they're like head, uh, if you will, like if you want to call them therapists, trainers, they're um, naturopaths by license. So they do manipulation, mobilization, acupuncture, uh, dry needling, or, you know, they'll utilize stuff with the electrical current. Um, I mean, they use a lot of the modalities that, we can commonly use depending upon state scope definition and then you know the exercise side of it uh with with huge emphasis on dns yeah like they're they're uh, guys that have done all the, uh, all the way up to c course okay yeah so quite knowledgeable so in my understanding you were the only american there yeah well that and just the only guy from north america period um they said they had um interest from others but nobody that pulled the trigger on going um there was 15 of us in class and uh i guess at one point they had around it was close to 40 people interested but for different reasons um be it due to travel either from North America or other parts of Europe. Yes, didn't, you know, couldn't piece together from or a lot of they had other uh other hockey guys that are supposed to come, but a challenging thing with that time of year is a lot of teams are rolling into season. So a lot of their trainers and therapists couldn't could not leave. But that was the only weekend, as I was told, that Mikel was open for this. He's he's completely booked through 2021. And it's unlikely at this point if they'll do another hockey DNS. And if they do, it would be maybe 2022 20, or 2023 at the earliest. That's insane. But that's because he's he's Mr. Hockey when it comes to DNS, and, and he's just you can't get them. Like they actually the guys from the Swedish team told me that they they set this thing up almost uh, over a year and a half ago. Wow. That's when they started trying to do this at the beginning of 2018. The earliest weekend they could get Mikel to come was uh, 
September 19th, 20th of 2019. So what's he doing if he's not doing the, the hockey courses? And is he? Um, in, in, it, well, he doesn't do hockey specific courses. This is the first time he's ever done a hockey specific course. It's just between his in, instructor travel for DNS in general, uh, work at the hospital, travel with the Czech national team, other obligations. Um, he, he, a lot of his weekends and stuff get tied up very quickly. And, and then there's weekends he needs in Prague with his family. So he's, uh, he's a very tough man to schedule, wow. apparently. That's really cool. So, I had no but idea with, with – go ahead. I had no idea he did so much of the hockey. When I did my – Yeah. Course, it was with him, and that was several years back. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I don't uh, – he's been doing it now for probably the better part about five or six years now. Where I think prior to him, it was more Pavel. Because okay. I've seen pictures of Pavel working on Yager or Pavel on the bench uh, with the Czech national team. So, um, you know, my first course with Mikel was back in 2008 with Craig Morris at, in Davenport. And back then, he, he wasn't doing work with hockey. So um, he's like, I think he's stepped into that more more recent like i think he i want to say he said it was around 2013 or 2014 is when he started that work so what were some of the the biggest takeaways for you then well um you know so the context of it was a a dns exercise one course um so for, for many people that were there, it was their first DNS course. Um, we had a lot of uh, therapists, um, naturopaths, uh, there was massage therapists. We had some trainers. With, uh, one guy I got to meet over there was pretty cool. He, um, he works with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Basically when all their Swedish players are there in the uh, off season, he trains them. So. He's kind of like a consultant and go-between, right? And his cool story is uh, he played with Peter Forsberg on their national team. Wow. So if some people know Peter Forsberg, he's probably the one of the – maybe considered the best player that came from Sweden. Okay. So, um, you know, which is kind of cool for me because I grew up uh, – I was a big fan of uh, Forsberg's and his style of play and – and we can dive more into that because we're learning some things from him about what made Peter great as a player was probably that he did everything very well that DNS teaches about, you know, be it centration or keeping a low center of gravity. Cause they would say he was, you, you couldn't out muscle him on the ice. That was one of the strengths of his game is uh, he could push anybody around and he could handle the physicality of the game. Um, and so uh, some of the stuff that he was thinking about almost retrospectively was like, he just probably, so it's because a lot of this stuff that DNS deals with is subcortical. You know, you have your cortical motor patterns, but these are programs or patterns that, are heavily influenced through the first, you know, one, two years of development. 
And, um, you know, with a lot of great athletes, they have great subconscious or subcortical control of their body. And then you know, the athletes that are often injured have poor subcortical control. And so somebody like Peter just, boom, just things just click. You know, he knows where his center of mass should be, knows how to basically centrate his entire body for efficiency and skating and leverage and shooting. And while well, he would say, like, he was not the strongest guy in the gym, he was always the strongest guy on the ice. Um, you know, like Mikael would go, like, he's like, yeah, like re- a lot of the stuff we were going over, which was kind of, uh, very interesting. Um, like you say, like wrestlers and, and martial artists are very good at how to use their body and their core to lever and how to keep their center of mass low. You know, it's like some of that, like I've seen McGill do stuff like Japanese stick fighting stuff like that, you know, almost like this tug of war where those type of athletes are really good at that stuff. But sometimes you get these hockey guys that have no idea how to create those leverages and advantages. And that's a lot of that's subcortical, you know, you're th- you're, you're engaged in a battle and not really thinking about the inner inner workings of your body, but some of them it just all clicks for. So, you know, like being in in, an exercise-based course, um, you know, there were things that we uh, addressed on on that end of the spectrum. But also, you know, if you're dealing with an athlete, you know, hockey athlete that's got painful shoulders, painful hips, back, you know, what have you, and, and the common reasons why that develops relative to the skating pattern or shooting, because Hockey is a unique blend of contralateral and ipsilateral patterns as like they would define it in, in DNS. So, you know, shooting like most or pretty much all rotational activities is, is ipsilateral. So, you know, we would use different um, rolling patterns for that. Um, and a lot of it just came back to stuff that we, you know, can kind of take for granted with, intra-abdominal pressure, sagittal stabilization, and how that's critical for dissociation of femoral acetabular internal and external rotation, which um, a lot of uh, hockey players are really poor with um, because of the tension in the hips and the tendency to fall into anterior tilt of the pelvis and a lot of extensive compressive forces in the lumbar spine. Um, And you get very tight rectus. And then when you get that tight rectus, it's hard to separate out the the femur from the pelvis. So you start to see a lot of postures um, that become more primitive or reminiscent of a newborn, right? Like if you put a newborn in um, prone and you'll see the, the, their pelvis and anterior tilt. And because as Mikael would say, like for the newborn, the rectus hasn't released. And it don't allow the pelvis to take that posterior tilt and the femur to basically come, you know, anterior in, in, the, in the socket. He's like, you'll find that with hockey players because of that flexed posture that they, you got to make regular maintain. So, um, you know, it's just, you, you see these presentations in a lot of populations for different reasons. You know, you might see that, 
in uh, just people walking around because they've got poor uh, abdominal control. You know, they're not necessarily an athlete. They're just, you know, they've got lower cross syndrome. Sure. Um, so what was neat was, you know, we, we did a lot of focus on, okay, you know, if they're getting uh, pain driven through, through skating or um, shooting or stuff like that, that might bring the light. Okay. If it's, if it's a skating pattern, we might use more contralateral focus um, prone, different crawling, you know um, if it's rotational, they might go, you know, um, supine positions, oblique sits, stuff like that, you know, to uh, work on the timing and the sequencing of, those patterns. Um, but then we got into some manual therapy conversations too, um, about what to do. Cause they're, you know, being a group of 15, this was one, I didn't expect this, uh, being a group of 15, it was such a, like a intimate learning environment. Like Mikel was really open with some of the manual stuff that they'll do. Um, prior to DNS exercises, you know, and especially because like the, the, guys that work with the Swedish national team it's like all right when these guys come off the ice or before the ice you know we don't have an we don't have an, an hour with them you, know, you got 20 30 guys on the team like you'd be there all day um so you have a, a, a narrow window to work with them and you want you want high quality and you want efficiency so um Mikel was sharing some of his go-tos in that sense you know if he's got a guy coming off and maybe he's got patellar tendonitis showing us some of his, uh, you know, patellar mobilizations and then how he would probably train them and maybe, uh, maybe go like supine to oblique sit, maybe some, um, low, low hanging or, um, if they can tolerate it, you know, some quadruped positions. Uh, cause oftentimes, you know, you're going to find issues with the hip and the lateral hip and um that may be creating compressive forces not only within like almost a hip impingement but you get all that tension through the it band and the vastus lateralis so doing releases and uh patterns to basically get get that tension out of the system and it's like all right if you only have like five to ten minutes with a player you know here bang 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 so um but yeah, it was, uh, main, that was the main focus of the course. Like, you know, you did a, uh, they introduced some of the basic screens, uh, in DNS. And then from there, like between like intra-abdominal pressurization, um, stabilization patterns, uh, be it prone, supine, um, so on. But then, you know, the exercises and, the, and then the manual therapy was another side of it that was really uh fascinating because that unless you're doing i think some of the a b courses that doesn't really get addressed even when kyle as you remember when when jaron would bring in some of the therapists to davenport they didn't do a, a whole lot with us on the manual side of stuff right you know so he was he was pretty much an open book which was pretty cool that's cool where do you fall on like your go-tos with manual therapy? And I only ask because going back to uh, when I don't remember, is it exercise one? Like the first one we went to, uh, 
Brett Winchester was teaching it and talking about his work with the pitchers and mm-hmm. about like trigger points and like the pack and whatnot and how he wouldn't yeah. really go right after it but would first run him through kind of the oblique sideline shoulder. I'm so bad at this. The oblique set. Yep. Yeah, that one. Um, yeah. And do that and you'd have good success with that trigger point in essence like unwinding itself without actually like going in and mechanically going after it. Yep. I've always thought was fascinating and just something that I know with my st- the staff here and just what I've seen, it's just like, oh, the pain's here and we just go to it. But yep. you haven't gone through a lot of this, and I know Kyle and I have had this conversation and looking at different things. And I, don't know, I was just curious, your thoughts, if you've got yeah. things that you go to or that's, – um, That's something I've like back and forth because like you, I've heard um, – Brett talk about that stuff and it's always piqued my interest where, you know, to, um, you know, like Levitt, uh, talked about, uh, the chain reactions in the body, you know, in certain, uh, trigger point chains, you know, in the disturbed function of the motor system. Um, so you'll find very characteristically patterns of trigger points associated with you know, be it, you know, neck, shoulder, thoracic spine, hip, and so on. So you can predictably find those patterns of trigger points, um, which I always like to do. I think it's a, it, it gets my mind focusing in on, you know, where the problem is at. You know, if I'm dealing with, you know, certain thoracic spine rotation, fixation, or blockage, or uh, cervical spine, but then it's, you know, for example, uh, Mikel would, you know, if we were looking at things in terms of um, shoulder pain, and, uh, you know, one of the big things there was like an overhead reach. And if you're seeing a blockage or a restriction or tightness on one side versus the other, you know, typically you're going to get a counter rotation fixation of the thoracic spine and, and then up into the, th- the cervical predictably trigger points, you know, if it's on that, my case, the right side and the upper trap, SCM scalings, you can get the pack. So you can start putting that all together. Like, okay, Hey, we know where some of the problems are at and it may direct me from an adjusting standpoint, which I like, you know? So if I'm dealing with that, um, then, you know, I'm getting, I'm not getting that certain spinous, rotation in the thoracic spine so that will influence me how I set up like on an anterior or uh, the way I I may adjust in in prone and then even up on into the cervical spine because that hypertonicity is going to pull those spinuses and that rotation to that right so when when I set up for like I want to I want to know I don't want to drive into the problem I'm going to correct so sometimes after my um I will adjust first. Um, sometimes you, you can find changes within the trigger points almost immediately just from the uh, adjustive side. Um, depending upon the level of hypertonicity and range of motion, restriction or sensitivity, I might go to manual work after that. Or, because I mean, honestly, that's what Mikel does. He does all of his manual stuff first from what he expressed to us. But then there's people like Brett that may go right into an exerciser position and then let the 
that almost a reciprocal inhibition take over and you might see that trigger point disappear. You know, as I remember, I, when I was in Orlando in March, I listened to Brett speak and uh, at the rehab symposium for the ACA. And one of his quotes was, um, you know, trigger points are a good thing in a poor functioning system. You know, they're almost there strategically. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be someone to just do manual therapy and kick someone out the door because those trigger points are be quick to return. Or maybe you just rob them of an inherent stability mechanism or motor control mechanism, and they may be more predisposed to maybe exacerbating their issue. Um, and then Mikael used a quote while we were over there from Pavel that he says, trigger points exist in the brain, not in the muscle. I think I've heard that one before. So yeah. that was the first time I had, I've heard that quote. I liked it. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it's anything you can do to impact the, you know, through the sensory system to make the change. But then and obviously, you know, they're big on that, the subcortical and the cortical integration. So, you know, um, be it through some sort of, DNS exercise or some sort of other exercise or corrective, you know, to kind of, you, you know, you're resetting the system through manual therapy, but then trying to like maybe reinforce, retrain, you know, through the, the exercise or through the awareness. Um, so I think either way, you can't go wrong. I think it's, I, 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 I ting back and forth with patients all the time. Because even some, some I'm sure you guys can appreciate, there's some people I have that just, you know, they respond really well going either direction. And I just maybe try to stick with that if I, if I learn that pattern with them. Yeah. It goes to that patient expectation and beliefs in the whole. Case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was interesting. Like, um, you know, even something with like, you know, a, a shoulder flexion pattern. Um, uh, Mikel was talking about in some of his experience, he found, um, you know, he might go through some of the flexors of the forearm and the bicep and up, up the chain where he'll do fascial manipulation, you know, basically release some of the fascial tissue. He's fine. And then boom, that pattern right. immediately better. So, you know, so for him, he'll oftentimes think of what kind of manual resets he can do and then then once he gets that then then he goes to his uh his dns yeah so and i'd say that's where i am the majority of the time you know i don't know what that means if it's like 70 30 but i would say probably more than half the people i work with i do my manual work first and then go into my active exercises Makes sense. Did you see any uh, major differences between, um, you know, what you know as what kind of like USA hockey uh, does compared to, you know, what, what your work over there, what they do in Sweden versus, um, you know, what they talked about uh, with the Czech team? Um, well, interestingly, I think this would be a totally conversa different conversation if we did this probably four or five years ago, um, but USA Hockey and their, not only just their coaching education program, you know, it was like, 
I'm a, I'm a level three coach with USA hockey and there, there's five levels to that, but you know, so I've been through their level, their, um, their coaching education program up to that point. Um, and I, I would have done four, but since I'm not coaching actively right now, I just, no, I'm not, uh, I haven't pursued it. But they have a, kind of what they call an athletic development model or their ADM within USA Hockey, um, which they introduce you to in their coaching education program, which has actually have been heavily influenced by people going over to Sweden to understand what it is they're doing with their players at a young age, uh, kind of systematically, um, not only physically, but psychologically in handling the little little nuances of how you know kids like at a young age are not psychologically ready for the rigors of competition and that heavy uh, focus on wins and losses and and so on you know um so even at a, at a young age with kids what to really focus them on you know mentally and not putting so much emphasis on wins and losses and the competitive side of the game but like kind of grooming them into that. And, uh, you know, USA Hockey, it, like it, you look at it years ago, it was kind of what I experienced as a young player is you might be on a, you know, an eight-year-old on an entire sheet of ice by yourself, right? And, uh, and that's a lot of space for young kids. But, you know, if you look at hockey, even though it's played on a large surface, it's really small area game. It's like the, the, the game is basically won and lost in, in the corners and the front of the net and little battles and trying to outnumber and create little two-on-ones on the ice and outnumber your opponent like a chess match. Um, and that's a huge emphasis that the Swedish uh, – development system has so they do a lot of what they call small area games with their young players you know so they get they get better at decision making quicker decision making quicker hands better feet you know and then you throw them out on a big ice surface and all of a sudden they got man i got so much time and space and if you look at some of those guys that come from be it sweden finland they're very crafty in tight areas you know they're very good decision makers they're headsy with the puck um they're just like fundamentally very sound. And so that's why USA Hockey wanted to go over and learn from it. And that's been integrated into the youth development model more and more at a young age with the focus uh, on small area games. And it's not uncommon, at least here in my area, where you might have on the ice at one time three young kid teams and like, you know, one's in, you know, one end, one's in the neutral zone and one's in the other end. And uh, they got little nets and, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of focus on um, basically what they call small area games where little two-on-ones, two-on-twos, learning how to position yourself um, efficiently on the ice, make good reads. And a lot of that's that like kind of a uh, – that mo the motor system, it's fed by the visual system. It's something that – Miguel talked about a lot and how they train them, but the, the using the eyes, you know, the eyes are big in DNS, right? The oral facial system and from an exercise standpoint over there, just training players how to, uh, you know, pull stuff, you know, like in focus 
you know, separate things out from the background, 3D, peripheral vision, stuff like that. So they need that developed very well to see the ice, you know, and uh, have that ability, like that depth perception, you know. If, if, if Kyle were a team and uh, we got Joel defending us, and I'm not necessarily looking at you, but through a crowd, I need to be able to distinguish his stick from yours. And if I got to sauce the puck over his stick to yours to make that perfect pass, I got to be able to make that read like that and visually make that distinction. So, you know, I think a lot of that's feeding into those small area games too, because those are really difficult plays to make in hockey. But if you can make those regularly, then you have high success. Um, so I, I think what USA hockey is doing has been in, in general, been heavily influenced by some of those countries over there, principally Sweden. Um, so I don't think there's a whole lot you know, different that's going on. I would say some of the conversations I had with the guys that work with the, the Swedish national team and even Mikel, I think the, the way they approach physical preparation is and actually training and conditioning their athletes is uh it's on another level and the biggest the biggest difference is this uh uh i mean i think strength training strength training um you know and obviously we can go a lot of different ways with that but um one of the conversations i had with the swedish uh guys was um and that this is just by comparison, you know, with some of the college and junior guys that we've worked with, you know, you'll hear this a lot. Like there's commonly, you know, 300 meter runs that are used, right? Cause they want to train that anaerobic threshold and that lactate threshold system and quote mimic a shift. Cause you know, most people will want to have someone run a 300 meter or 300 yard shuttle or something in, in anywhere from like 51 to 55 seconds. Okay. So, like, for example, our guy that plays at Stevens Point, they'll do, I think, upwards of five 300-meter runs as their conditioning test. And they're expected to run those uh, at, like, I think, 52 or 53 seconds or better, and, and you get two minutes rest in between. Okay? Now, by comparison, the Swedish national team, okay, this is a workout. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a workout that they do, okay? So they'll, they'll do 300-meter shuttles, okay? And the players are going to run those around 53 to 55 seconds, and they don't want to see a big drop-off. They want to see the, that consistency. Two-minute rest, and they do anywhere from 9 to 16 of those. Oh my gosh. And here in America, like people think two, two, three, or four, three hundreds is a lot. Yep. <laughs> but that's, that's what, that's what they, even through their U17, U18, to get them to the national team, that's what the national team guys are doing regularly. And they, they, they go through it. So it's like, I, I think on the whole, the, some kids over here just in general are just their their fitness is greatly lagging 
And then to get someone's fitness to that level, I think most people are like, nah, screw it. Don't care. I don't need that. But they make all their guys do that unless they're they're injured or they just have some sort of intolerance to running, then they, you know, they'll they'll find other means by be it a bike or whatnot. But without with very rare exception, all the, they run all their guys like that in the uh in the off season. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I was pretty blown away when I heard that. Cause I mean, even being through it myself, like, yeah, I've done, I've done workouts where, where I've tried four or five, three hundreds and that's a gasser. Like you're, you're pretty spent by the end of it. They're nearly doubling or tripling that on a regular basis. Dang, that sounds awful. So, but they, they start them at a young age and then they build them up to being able to have those work capacities. Right. Sure. Now you, you try to do that with, you try to do that with some of our kids now, it would it would crush them because they just don't have that they don't have that built-in work capacity already. You know, it's okay. I mean, for some of them, even just doing three or four three hundred shuttles is brutal. I mean, my uh, my conditioning test for our high school program is is six two hundred yard shuttles. It's not. It's nothing. Yeah. compared to that and i have kids that are on the brink of puking regularly yeah they're holding it back and it's <laughs> and i mean i even give them more rest it's a better work to rest ratio okay. they're they're almost working at a, a, a one to two that with theirs um, i'm a little bit more forgiving mm-hmm. you know but it's just yeah you, you get you know i start working with kids oftentimes when they're 12 or 13 and they're from a physical conditioning standpoint, they're already behind the eight ball. And, and so you just, you can't really accelerate that process because if you try to accelerate it, it's just going to leave the overtraining there. It's going to be detrimental to them. Yeah. It's having the patience to build it. Yeah. But a lot of those, you know, that's the whole other conversation between parents and players, just right. not having the patience. Yeah. Or getting the kids that want to, put in the word also part of it yeah question before but we would kind of come up with a question of you know in some yeah. world that is complicated how would you make that simple okay and so asking you that question kind of around the dns approach with hockey yeah you'd like to still that down as a kind of like a okay so yeah what all right so um, I, I would say, you know, from a standpoint of hockey player, like one of the things that Mikel hit on a lot, actually it was interesting because we did um, a lot of work on just uh, gate and uh, ground-based locomotive patterns, um, you know, and getting um, appropriate um, – you know, kind of a foot mechanics through, through the big toe for extension and how if you can't access that, um, then you don't get the glute and extension because, you know, you're looking at these patterns of gait through extension and internal rotation and, and pronation. Um, and so with a lot of the hockey players, um, they have a tr- they have, they're very limited in internal rotation in the hip. Um, because the, the lateral rotators of the hip 
get tight and they get a lot of impingement. So, you know, therefore they're going to have a harder time um, accessing, you know, sometimes getting into some of those internal rotation mechanisms of extension and pronation through the foot. Um, so looking at that as a chain, you know, if you're dealing with hip issues, which are very common in the hockey player, um, then, you know, think of it as, okay, look at the, look at the foot, look, look how they load through the foot. Um, look how they load through the foot, uh, through, through toe off and, uh, walking patterns, running patterns, jumping, stuff like that. Cause if they're not getting through to, you know, basically, uh, that metatarsal head, um, they're not going to fully access the glute. So they, there's a lot of re retraining of that. Um, not only DNS patterns, but certain other exercises. Um, and then in doing that too, trying to do more rec quad release. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can have these like litany of problems with a hockey player, you know, uh, they come in with pain and you're trying to understand stuff, but it's almost like you can almost treat them in a way like you would a runner. Um, you know, they're toe off. There's going to get, they're really big. They need that quality pronation and eversion through the foot when with toe off on skating. So it's a little bit of a different mechanism with running, but if you, if they aren't able to do that through the foot, they're, they're, the hip's going to suffer too. Um, so basically kind of keeping it simple is like, Sometimes looking at them, we weren't, we weren't really looking at it much different than uh, a ground-based athlete. So I think you don't have to completely dismiss some of the stuff that um, you already put into practice with some of those other athletes. Um, you know, there just might be different mechanisms behind what's feeding it, just from their sport and the repetitive nature of the sport, um, and that they need tremendous amounts of sagittal plane stability in their core because skating most players it's flex posture anterior tilt they get that open scissor effect and so you'll find that they become very uh excessive ex, uh, extensive compressive in the lumbar spine weak in the abdominals so classic patterns that we, you see a lot of so it's like between those like you can't go wrong you can do so good with living in those zones with a hockey player. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate taking the time. I'm sure. Yeah. Experience for you. Absolutely, boys. We'll have a part four coming soon. I'm sure. I can. Yeah. Hey, I. So. I like it. You know. So. <laughs> All right. Hey, you guys have a good one. Good Always good call. talking. We'll yep. be in touch. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Pressed. Go to clinicallypressed.com for full show notes and links to everything that was covered in this episode. While you're there, you have access to all of our episodes, insights, and shorts. You can find Clinically Pressed on YouTube and any podcast outlet. If you could give us a rating, thumbs up, or review on how we are doing, we would greatly appreciate it. To get more free content delivered to your inbox, sign up for the Total Athletic Therapy Newsletter. You'll get direct links to all new Clinically Pressed episodes, 
reviews on some of the latest research in health and performance, and links to related podcasts and other items meant to help you make the complicated simple and optimize performance. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.